0: Welcome to the Criterion Chat, a podcast dedicated to discussing those titles chosen by the Criterion Collection for Preservation. I'm Nate Myers, joined by Matt Peterson, as we discuss the curious case of Benjamin Button on our 14th episode. Awaiting Hurricane Katrina to make landfall in New Orleans, the elderly Daisy Fuller, played by Kate Blanchett, lays dying in a hospital accompanied by her daughter, Caroline, portrayed by Julia Ormond. Asking her daughter to read aloud from the diary of one Benjamin Button, we learn the astonishing tale of a man born under unusual circumstances, with the looks and ailments of an elderly man. Brad Pitt plays the title role, assisted by a team of body doubles and digital wizards, as the viewer follows the life of a man who ages backwards, from the day of his birth on Armistice Day 1918, through the major social changes of the 20th century. Under the direction of David Fincher, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button loosely adapts an F. Scott Fitzgerald short story into a massive motion picture. Total somber emotion punctuated by moments of irony and tenderness, the movie features an eclectic cast of characters as it powders the meaning of life and love. Marking a dramatic departure from the director's previous work in terms of story, the film nonetheless shows Fincher's uncanny control of cinematic technique as the storytelling uses the tools of cinema to craft an exemplary work of craft. Nominated for 13 Academy Awards and winning three of them, both critics and audiences have warmly greeted this unusual tale about life in the modern world. Released by the Criterion Collection on both DVD and Blu-ray in 2009, with an impressive collection of supplements, the Curious Case of Benjamin Button stands as one of the most mainstream entries in the series. Join Matt and me as we recollect the curious study, story of a man born under unusual circumstances. So, Matt, I will begin this podcast by offering you an apology. I uh, know that you do not like this movie. And I picked it anyway for reasons that we'll get into as we talk about it. Uh, But I also think of this as a preemptive strike because I know sometime you're going to be picking a Tarkovsky movie or something of that nature. And so as I'm seeing that, I'll remember, you know, at the very least, I struck first. Uh, so we'll have that to go with here.
1: Well, I'm I'm so, meticulously planning my, my sweet revenge, so rest assured.
0: Well, as you are burning my crops, I'll just remember I laid waste to your railways. <laughs> but neither one of us actually really cares much for this particular movie. No. So maybe it's worth starting at why it is that it doesn't work, because there's a lot going for it every time you watch it. Uh, there's a lot going on They you go, that's good, that's good, that's good. But as a whole, I think both of us agree it doesn't come together. So what is it that it's missing or what is it that's preventing it from really clicking and coming together as a a good movie?
1: Well, I I guess kind of as an overview, uh, I've always felt this film was extremely manipulative in a way that comes across as obnoxious. Uh, And I mean, you could say that films are meant to be manipulative uh in many ways and and emotionally manipulative and that's what they intend to do um for for any given audience but uh this film just feels like kind of a a very classic hollywood product like all the pieces are there uh you've got the big name actors you've got uh you know the love story is paramount, um, moments of unrequited love, uh, moments of scandalous love. I mean, it really is a love story ultimately, but it's, it's told in a, in a way that's, uh, very straightforward in my opinion. Uh, as I said, very manipulative and in a way that just comes across as kind of intellectually dishonest in some ways. Uh, I mean, I, I could ramble on, I guess, but the, the biggest reason why I, I feel like the film doesn't work is you know, I, I think of the story as a whole and i think of this this storytelling device of a character that's aging backwards right um it really comes across as a gimmick and it comes across as kind of a facade to to convey some level of depth and uh you know trying to convey a profound message that i feel just really isn't there Uh, you know how does his this character aging backward add any anything to this story Uh, is it trying to boil the message down to well you know love is is the the core uh of life and and that's that's the the element that transcends age and that transcends time i mean you can maybe pull that out of the story but look at the framework of the film what happens in the film if The main character wasn't aging backwards and it was just a normal life and these were events in that life this would be an extremely boring film and a very predictable film uh so in a way this device has to be there to somehow make it more interesting but like i said it's a gimmick and ultimately it's hollow and it's ultimately not adding anything to the film beyond uh manipulating people's conceptions and manipulating people's impressions uh, that they're witnessing something more profound than it really is. I guess that's the best way to to summarize it.
0: I don't know if I quite use the word manipulation. It didn't strike me as a manipulative movie, uh, at least not in the sense of, um, oh, take something like Philadelphia, uh, that movie by Jonathan Demme, where it's very manipulative, and uh, you should feel this now, you should feel that now. I don't know that this quite is that kind of manipulation, but I agree with you that it's in this concept of this man aging backwards, which is a fanciful concept, but almost ignored in this movie, uh, as if they were scared of it or they didn't know what to make of it themselves. Because you're right, it doesn't seem to add anything. It doesn't seem to really matter. Uh, Nobody seems to really be taking this to heart. I mean, the opening scenes have him as a baby, People thinking, oh, he's going to die, and so no need to give him any sort of care or whatever. He'll just let him be to die. But nobody is sitting there going, you know, this is kind of the most marvelous medical thing in the world. Uh, This man's aging backwards. Let's study this. I I would think that scientists would be coming from all over. People would be falling all over themselves to learn about this story. And I would think that everybody around him would be a little weirded out by it. Hmm, you know, so last time I saw you, you looked like you're 80, and now you look like you're 50. Most people would be bothered by this, and everybody in the movie just sort of goes with it and doesn't comment on it or think about it. So it's just this bizarre decision to have this concept that absolutely does not pay off in the movie at all. Uh, And the concept itself is one that doesn't lend itself to serious work. If this movie wants to be serious but it doesn't have a premise that really you can take seriously. Uh, The the short story it's based on by F. Scott Fitzgerald I've read, and I'm not an F. Scott Fitzgerald expert, but he clearly wrote it as a minor little project, probably just passing time between bigger projects and just doodling, and he plays it almost as just sort of a, a farce and having a little bit of fun, whereas this movie gets so serious about it and so I think a lot of the fault really comes down to Eric Roth's screenplay. I I, I think that's where the, the main issues lie.
1: Well, I guess that's what I'm getting at when I talk about intellectual dishonesty. Uh, I mean, you made the point of this idea of a man aging backwards. You're right. I mean, it's not given its due attention, right? And uh, there, there's so much they could have done with that that's really just left left on the the cutting room floor so to speak or the writer's room floor uh and and it's very strange i mean it's it's strange to have such a high concept film and to not explore it in such a way that that would live up to its potential uh and and it has this sense of self-importance and the sense of of um it believes it's being very profound and it's not earning the the kind of airs it puts on so it just comes across as obnoxious, uh, and, I, and I say manipulative because the film wants the audience to, to be caught up in this emotional spectacle, right? And, and it's just kind of grabbing all those elements, you know, the, the dying old woman in bed recollecting about her life and, and uh, just those very typical archetypes that we've seen over and over in films. Uh, the storm is brewing outside. You know, the hurricane is approaching, and and just these elements that uh, maybe I've just seen too many films, but they they really hit you over the head. And uh, again, ultimately, the film isn't uh, earning the the moments that it's uh, trying to convey or trying to achieve.
0: Well, and even the setting of it in the 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 framing device of Hurricane Katrina is. To me, somewhat offensive, the movie comes out two thousand and eight, so it 's being filmed during that year and some of two thousand and seven uh, developed in the years preceding that. You know, Hurricane Katrina is a real event with real people who really did die and really did lose everything and then to put that as sort of the framing device of a tale that 's way too far removed from anything that has to do with New Orleans, the real New Orleans and I just find that in bad taste, uh, and I don't really understand why they felt the need to do that. You could easily have dropped the framing device altogether, and quite frankly, it's a movie that is bloated. I mean, this is a bloated movie. It's close to three hours, and it does not have a script that merits a three-hour runtime. And I think that's maybe really part of what doesn't work about it either is that a lot of the individual scenes I find interesting. You know, this. So, for example, the the subplot that comes up about. Midway through the movie in which uh, Benjamin Button is having his first uh, liaison, his, his first uh, romance with uh, the uh, the British spy's wife, Elizabeth, uh, played by Tilda Swinton. It's a perfectly nice little set piece. Yeah. Makes maybe for an interesting short film. Uh, or it could be just if you focus on those characters and kind of developed and expanded that, it could be an interesting movie in its own right. But within this larger context, it just feels like, well, that doesn't advance the thrust, which is this supposed love story between Benjamin and Daisy. And ultimately, it actually, I think, works against that love story because not only do we then have this detour that doesn't really advance the narrative, but we also then have a sense of, why do these two even love each other? There's never, to me, an understanding of why they love each other. Yeah. Uh, Other than the initial, maybe the early scenes where you have the very... Uh, young children, right? Benjamin obviously looking like an old man, but still being a, like a seven-year-old, and, and Daisy meeting and having this little shared uh, secret and the conversation under the table. I mean, there's something kind of sweet and tender in those scenes, but otherwise, it just seems like it's it's po- it's pondering, it's meandering here and there. It's It doesn't seem to have any drive or focus, and maybe that's part of the self-importance aspect, that nothing really seems to be accomplished as you're going from set piece to set piece.
1: Well, even beyond that, um, it's hard to understand Benjamin's allegiance to her because she pretty much treats him like crap throughout most of the film. (laughs) I mean, they they do have this. Well,
0: you know, in that sense now, now you say that Matt, you know, it seems like a very realistic love story.
1: (laughs) Well, um, I'll let that slide. uh, uh, Just
0: because your wife may actually be listening to this podcast, right?
1: (laughs) Well, I I think she abandoned this long ago. Uh, (laughs) She's a smart woman. Yes, that's why I married her. Uh, Well, Daisy is just not a very likable character, at least to me, uh, throughout the film. No, neither here. Yeah, she's... And I guess part of it is it's kind of hard to gauge her age throughout the film because, uh, you know, she's... She's played very well by Kate Blanchett but uh there are moments where okay she's supposed to be in her late teens or early 20s uh when she's a dancer in New York and and she's kind of you know bouncing between different relationships and and uh, discovering uh what it means to be in a relationship Yet she clearly looks like a much older adult. So it's it's kind of confusing from an audience standpoint to understand that, okay, we're supposed to be seeing her at a point in her life where she's not very mature. And that kind of come, comes across as a little confusing. And it's even more confusing from an emotional standpoint when we see uh, Benjamin Button. Granted, he's younger at this point, but he still looks quite a bit older. Uh, so you don't kind of get the emotional grounding that comes from seeing, you know, two kids that are trying to understand what it means to to be in a relationship or to forge a relationship so so there is some emotional confusion there in the storytelling uh but yeah overall she's just not very likable and it's it's hard to understand what kind of a connection they have i mean i guess benjamin's character just has felt that connection from day one when they met his children and that's something that he's uh been clinging on to but even that he comes across as a bit of a stalker from time to time, uh following her around the world and kind of expecting her to drop everything and to to jump into his arms but I guess part of that is his emotional immaturity as well, but yeah, it's a relationship that is trying to be complicated and trying to be uh you know meaningful uh in, in again the the element of him aging backwards. They're, they're trying to use that as a device to, to complicate their lives, to complicate this relationship, to add a new dimension, to make it profound, but it ultimately just kind of confuses the emotional waters and makes everything kind of muddled, and you don't have that sense of grounding. I mean, the, the one moment where I felt like, okay, this kind of works is when they're in the dance studio and they realize that their ages are kind of lining up at that point when they're in their mid-40s or so. And then he looks in the mirror and says, you know, I want to remember us as we are now. That, that was kind of one of the few moments where I felt, OK, there, there's a real connection there. And I, I, I'm not saying that people have to be the same age to have uh, a romantic connection. I'm not saying that. But it, you know, from from the context of this film, the age discrepancies do play into, I think, a sense of disconnect that you really can't avoid. Uh, and it's such a central device to the film that it kind of becomes counterproductive.
0: Agreed. Well, I think they miss a lot of opportunities. Let's take those earlier scenes with Benjamin and with Daisy and and think about those. Uh, he should be a child, right? I mean, he's also a teen. I mean, they're basically the same age, right? They're just biologically, the his body's in reverse. But So in terms of developmental interest to me because he, he is still had to learn how to speak, he had to learn how these different things, you know, he's not born with any sort of innate knowledge and so he should also be sitting there confused and not understanding how a relationship works and being self-absorbed like a young person is and they kind of play it like he's this old man just sitting there proddling, uh, just kind of idling by and listening to her stories about how she's meeting this person and doing this kind of dancing and they play it like he's an old man but He's not, and so there isn't a sense of you could play that that sense of how he is uh, not able to live the life he might want, right? You know, he he's you, you could have the sense of loss, like ah, I, I I because of my circumstances, I can never really have the love that I want to have with her because I can't physically keep up with her. You know, I'm physically too young uh, or, or too old, but I, I have the spirit, right? And so therefore, I'm, I'm missing in something here. None of that's there, and so it's kind of well. Yeah, it feels like she is dating her grandpa, uh, which is just in (laughs) of itself not really addressed then. Like, well, what's the awkwardness of this? I mean, nobody seems to ever kind of look at it and go, hey, why are you with this older man? Uh, That doesn't ever come up in in those scenes too. So that's where you just kind of go, this is not really working together uh, in any sort of meaningful way. And so you have really a concept, a script that don't actually pack anywhere near the emotional punch that they think they do. Yeah. And that well, sadly, it seems the whole cast and crew seem to think they do. Uh, because it does strike me, as I watched this movie, that everybody who made it really believed in it.
1: It sure seems that way. I mean, everyone seems quite committed to, to what they're doing, and I don't get the sense that anyone is giving a halfway effort. Um, but it, but even the logic of the idea of someone aging backwards is not followed uh even from a biological standpoint within the sense of, uh, or within the context of the film, if you can call it that. So he's, he's born as an old baby, right. And then dies as Mm -hmm. a, uh, dies as a young baby. Well, it doesn't quite make sense. Like, yeah, that uh,
0: also always bothered me. Why is he looking (laughs) like a baby, but a full grown man or something at the end? Right.
1: Well, yeah. um, Well, uh, yeah. By that logic, he should look like exactly a, a full grown baby which I suppose from a practical standpoint would look very, very odd and it wouldn't provide the emotional, uh, uh, power of Cape Blanchett holding an infant that we know is a 90 year old person that's dying. Uh, so then, you know, by that logic, he should have been born a full size elderly man. Uh, and that birthing scene would not have been pretty. So, there <laughs> there are
0: which incidentally if you would just if you ever do read the short story that is how fitzgerald wrote it that he was born able to talk he was born larger and uh they don't obviously get into the the birthing of it so that's that, that's not described to the short story but it does make sense and then it plays off at, at the end like where for example in in the short story benjamin enrolls in harvard and is a massive success but as he continues to go through harvard he starts to become younger and so like he was on the football team as this great star in his first year but then he winds up being cut from it because as he gets younger he gets less effective at playing against the other players hmm. so i mean there's none of that playing out going on here It's just it's 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 its, it's, it's own internal logic doesn't work
1: yeah and it, i understand that they're kind of going for a fairy tale Type of story, you know, so some flexibility there is understandable. But I, I, again, I go back to the manipulative aspect of it. It's like, okay, we're not really following the logic of the o- of the film's own world and o- own universe, and it's it's done for manipulative reasons. It's done to make uh, certain elements of the story become more emotionally relatable to the audience, and. It just kind of betrays the concept in a way that that comes across as, again, kind of obnoxious. So uh, I suppose most people are able to overlook these things and just go with the film. Uh, But uh, again, the level of of dishonesty in terms of the world it's creating just uh, really undercuts what it's trying to do.
0: I agree, you know, it's, it's sad because it is such a well-made film. I yeah. mean, if we've been focusing on what the movie gets wrong, it gets a lot of things right. And it's it's about as well-made a film as you can have as far as the actual execution of it. Uh, this is a beautiful-looking movie. Its sound design is very good. Acting is very good. Um, so, I mean, there's there's a lot to admire about this movie, which makes ultimately my disappointment in it all the more frustrating uh, yeah. i would say this is one of those movies where i watched it a few times now and you know some movies you watch and you kind of grow in your appreciation every time i watch this i like it less it's the exact opposite uh i i, I find myself more frustrated with it probably partly because you can look at it and go wow there's so much to take in visually and the score and all these different things that just sound wonderful but to nothing and so it is a frustrating movie in that regard. Um, one thing that may be worth talking about is just because of the nature of how they made this movie, obviously a great use of of uh, special effects, uh, building on the success of other movies that had come before it and integrating them very well into the story, which is really just kind of a, a way in which movies are being made now in the light of Avatar, Life of Pi, Hugo, right? this kind of integration of visual effects at all times. This movie, basically, every shot is a special effects shot. Uh, how do you evaluate, or how do you think, Matt? We should evaluate movies in in light of this new era of digital filmmaking.
1: Well, it's it's a challenging question. I mean, it, it opens up a lot of possibilities, right? I mean, that the technology is is very liberating, and and the visual effects in this film hold up very, very well. Um, I even think it looks better than uh, a lot of more recent films that have tried to do either de-aging or digital face replacement. Um, you still kind of get that waxy sort of rubber face effect in, in some shots, but overall the integration is really, really good. Uh, but you always have that jarring moment when they switch over to the actor and makeup, and it's kind of like, oh, you know, you, you always notice that. And, and it's definitely noticeable in this film, too. Um, but, you know, with. I, you know i think of rogue one recently as a, a film that brought back an actor from the grave essentially with with peter cushing uh reappearing as as tarkin you know the it does kind of open up uh a lot of kind of scary potential i guess in terms of where this is heading and and we have to kind of ask ourselves uh uh, what the the moral implications are to to bringing back actors or to to digitally recreating actors that that may be deceased or or uh, may have not intended to to play such a role? So, uh, I think there are some ethical questions that that come up with the level of visual effects that we're seeing nowadays. But you know, I, I think people can look back to this film as as a real touchstone in terms of uh, advancing that technology. Uh, as you said most most shots are visual effects shots in this film and it's pretty seamless and i mean i have to echo you uh, in terms of the craft of this film the craft in this film is pretty impeccable and i mean we all know david fincher is a very talented filmmaker Uh, but i I do wonder why he picked this project i mean it does seem very out of the norm for him and maybe that's why he picked it he wanted to do something uh maybe more family oriented Uh, but if you kind of look into the history of this film It went through a lot of different phases of development with a lot of different directors, but finally settled on Fincher. Uh, But I'm I'm digressing. Uh, What's your take on the the visual effects?
0: It's an interesting question, just how do we evaluate movies with the digital age? It's not exactly a new question. I mean, special effects have been around since the silent era. But, for example who gives the performance of Benjamin Button, right? That's a question they have to ask now. Obviously, I would say, oh, it's, it's Brad Pitt and he was great and I, I agree. I, I thought he was very good and that was an excellent performance. But how much is it him? Because you now have not only him, but you have these two body doubles that are people that are playing the parts of him as an older man and then they map them onto it so how much is him versus how much is them and it's kind of tough to put all the performance and give him credit for all of it then you have just the digital wizards that did everything that they did to integrate it and as you said with pretty much uh astonishing success i would i would argue i i think it holds up very well and Yes, there are some shots, as there always are, that don't quite work as well as others, but it's very few and far between, and certainly nothing that distracts you. Like, the stuff in Rogue One was very distracting yeah. uh, with both Carrie Fisher and with Peter Cushing, but this never was distracting to me. So, I, I mean, to, to that credit, this is exactly what you want in visual effects. You don't want them to speak to you, right? Uh, it's the idea the best visual effect is the one you don't know is a visual effect, and... I think they do that pretty well on this, in all honesty. So it's a great success, a great triumph, but it does then make who actually owns, who gets credit for this performance, who gets credit for this character, a little more difficult. Not that that maybe wasn't there before. I mean, how much would a makeup artist deserve credit for John Hurt's performance in The Elephant Man? Yeah. But you do have, I think, a little bit harder time ciphering what is the real art here. Where is... Where is the real art here, uh, and who are the artists? It's perhaps a great thing because it, it hits collaboration and the importance of collaboration all the more. But it does make it, I think, a little. We we have the tendency to want to put the emphasis on a particular person. Brad Pitt's the one that gets the Oscar nomination, right? But he doesn't make this performance all on his own, and I think no small part it's from those earlier scenes that he probably attracted so much notice for his performance his later the later scenes are good but they nothing there's nothing to him that's really remarkable it's those earlier scenes that seem so remarkable and that's not all on his shoulders so
1: yeah you almost um, have to know how they made the film to judge the actor's performance you know is this is this all being captured through you know motion capture technology uh with brad pitt himself how much of it's being animated i mean granted that's his vocal performance so there's some value there but, yeah, you're kind of uh, splitting hairs at a certain point where you're, you're wondering, you know, who, who gets the credit and, and, and what goes where in terms of um, the, the final product or evaluating the final product. But, yeah, ultimately it's film's a collaboration and, and what we're seeing on screen is an amalgam of, of every element. So that's, that's a, a tough question to answer.
0: And I do think, at the end of the day, I do think David Fincher's the wrong director for this material. But yeah. well, he does have incredible talent. Uh, I have a mixed opinion of David Fincher. Some of his stuff I like. Most of his recent stuff I would say I like. But a lot of his earlier stuff I didn't like. And this is, I guess, in that little transition period there where I, I didn't like something, I did like something. But he approaches it, I think, with just the wrong attitude. The 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 story's being taken too seriously by him as a director as well. Just the visuals, the way he paces it, these long takes, very drawn out. You know, a lot of shots being taken in in wide shots, and it's not as um, not as light as it should be in its in its directing of the, the performances, uh, as the directing of the action. Uh, there's this sense of importance in his filmmaking. I think this really should have been made. If, it, if you're going to make this story this needs to be made with like a Steven Spielberg uh, because he would have i think had the the whimsy that the premise deserves or requires for it to work as opposed to the seriousness that Fincher brings to it this just is hard to to direct with his attitude which is a more cynical i guess you could say attitude yeah. and i just don't think he's the right director for it he he brought together a great looking movie but I think he's got the wrong tone in his approach.
1: Yeah, I mean it's it's very much a Fincher tone, and it's it's a clash. It's weird to see this kind of fairy tale material framed in in a, a Fincher way. Uh, yeah, his his visual style is quite moody and quite dark, and and this film is kind of bathed in those darker earth tones. And yeah, visually it looks fine uh, on its own merit, but it, it does lack yeah i think whimsy is probably the right term for it i mean this is definitely right up spielberg's alley and i think he was attached to the project at, at one point
0: with tom cruise back in the 90s yeah.
1: yeah yeah so uh i can certainly see spielberg being interested in this uh i, I guess I, I haven't really delved into uh the special features uh with this but i wonder if fincher ever speaks to what interested him about this project or why he um, why he decided to pursue it did did you uh, come across any information on that
0: it's in the documentary on the disc he does well i don't know if he says it explicitly this is why i did it but it seems to be tied up at least in part with his dad's own passing which perhaps that gets to some of the melancholy or the somberness that's in this movie hmm. the the sense of the life will end uh which is very much a part of this movie it's it seems to be what sort of to be a meditation on on death a meditation on the fact that life is passing which isn't a bad movie to tell and this could even be the kind of story that does tell it that way but that's such a very real and resonant story and something that works uh, that we all face that it doesn't seem to really gel with the premise of a man aging backwards because that seems to almost be going the opposite right uh, that life is is going to be renewed uh, you can always be young even when you're old or something like that you know so it, it just kind of is a bizarre uh attempt to try to bring those themes into this particular work um i would say i think besides Brad Pitt's performance you have a good cast yeah uh I've, i'll be honest i didn't like Kate Blanchett's performance uh maybe it's what you were pointing out earlier matt about the confusing that it's hard to judge her age Based yeah. on, she does always kind of look middle aged once she's playing the part, but I just never really could get the sense of why she was interested in Benjamin. I never got the sense of what uh, her regrets were or what her her happiness was. I I never really bought this character as anything other than a conceit, and I it's a shocking to say that about Kate Blanchett because she usually does such a great job, but I just never really thought she found the character or, or the character's voice.
1: Well, I, I I kind of put that on the screenplay's shoulders, I think, more than hers. Uh, I just don't think she had much to work with.
0: Well, I'd agree with that, but, I don't know, she seems to have the, the she has that kind of talent that usually can rise above material. Yeah. And for some reason, this one, it didn't.
1: Yeah, I, one of, I, probably one of her weaker outings. I mean, I think it's fair to say that. But I, I just think the story is so problematic that even as, you know, a great actor probably would struggle to find some footing. And you know, w- one thing I, I just have to mention on, on kind of a moral level is just how casually this film treats infidelity. I found kind of disturbing. <laughs> There's a lot of sleeping around going around going on with, uh, with married people. And it's just kind of treated like, Oh, that's just part of life. And that's, you know, discovering love and discovering what it means to love. And, uh that just came across as kind of bothersome to me call me a prude i guess
0: well you are but so am i so i'm with (laughs) you on it i think i mean i agree with you what actually bothered me most of all when i first saw this back in the theater was its anachronism the mores that they are portraying in this movie are not the mores of the historical period and it obviously takes place over many so historical periods. You have it in the, right at the end of World War I. You have it again during the Prohibition, Depression, World War II. You have the 70s, 60s, right? So you have this whole wide range. But it's all told from the perspective and the social viewpoint of Gen Xers. Uh, this is a Gen- Generation X movie. I think the, the movie they compare this to is Forrest Gump.
1: Yeah, same screenwriter,
0: Eric Roth. Yes, wrote both screenplays, but it's the same kind of story. This idea of a kaleidoscope of of America during the twentieth century. Yeah, this sense of a a unique, interesting, bumbling kind of character uh, that is going through these major events or these major periods, and Forrest Gump is a baby boomers uh, attempt at this, and. This is a Gen Xers, the curious case of Benjamin Button is a Gen Xer's attempt at it Now, Eric Roth himself, the screenwriter, is a baby boomer, but David Fincher, Brad Pitt, Kate Blanchett, all of them are are Gen Xers, and so there's a kind of cynicism that comes into this movie, and a sense of... Like, nobody is married in this movie, which bothered the hell out of me. I remember thinking of that at the time, that, for example, Queenie, uh, Benjamin's adopted mother, played by Taraji P. Henson, and I thought she was very good in the movie. Yeah. I thought she was actually maybe the best performance in the entire movie. It creates the most interesting character, in a sense. But here she's raising this child. Nobody seems to really care. She eventually gets pregnant later on, has her own baby, But not married, and there's no sense of scandal. There's nobody's output. There's there's none of that sense of hey, you can't stay here anymore because that would have been the mores of that time period, and the movie doesn't portray that at all, good or bad. Doesn't it just pretends that nope, that this was just the way it was. That's totally fine because that's the way Gen Xers live, right? Uh, When later on Benjamin and Daisy have their child, right? Caroline is Benjamin's daughter who's hearing the story of her father as she's uh, with her dying mother. Uh, there's there's this scene where they have all these neighbors over and they're all uh, having a birthday party. I thought in the mid-60s, nobody's doing that unless they live in the middle of Soho, New York, but they're in some part of New Orleans. This would have been considered scandal at those times. And again, you can think that's an overreaction on the cultural's part. But that was the historical period, and the movie just decides, no, we're going to just pretend like it's all taking place with the memories of 2008. Yeah. And I found that morally problematic. I, I think it's it's a, a a serious flaw of the storytelling to project your own cultural viewpoint into past historical periods because ultimately you have a responsibility to try to, as best as you can, accurately portray the period in which your movie is set. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's a good point. I agree with that. I mean, um, despite how anyone may feel about cohabitation or living together or children out of wedlock, uh, you're right to say that in those the time periods being depicted, any of those things would have been seen as, as scandalous or taboo. And, and the film does really gloss over that. So... Um, kind of goes back to the, the dishonesty of the film that it's just not taking, it's just not taking the problem or the, the concept seriously enough, or, uh, it's, it is applying modern conventions, uh, to the wrong time period. Um, and, and as you said, if it, if it had framed that within the context of a more, liberal aspect of society, like you said, Soho, or if they're in, you know, uh, uh, in the hate in uh, San Francisco in the 60s or something, where where that sort of thing may have been more accepted from a cultural standpoint than than it would have flown a bit better. Uh, But it it is noticeable, uh, especially once you point it out.
0: Well, I think anachronism is an ordinary part of any historically made uh set film right yeah any movie any book that is about a past age to a certain extent is always going to carry with it something of the era in which it is written or made so i don't mind it entirely because it's not entirely avoidable but at least attempt right at least make an attempt to try to be accurate and true to the period beyond just the costumes or the sets Mm -hmm. It's very superficial. Maybe that gets at the underlying point of this movie. It's a very superficial movie. Uh, Rather than doing the hard work of going, okay, what were the social mores of that time? What would have been the reasons for those mores? Why is that good or bad? And then as a filmmaker, as a screenwriter, director, an actor, coming to a decision and then trying to say something about that historical time period, it's just, let's kind of dress ourselves up in it, but we're just really all talking about the world as we see it here today. And that's very much a Generation X character trait, if you ask me. Uh, the The sense of a ignorance of history uh, is very apparent in that generation and, and on into the millennials as well. So it, it bothers me. It really kind of gets under my skin when I see it in this particular movie because what it does is it normalizes our world today and says that's just the way the world always is, but not really. I mean, it hasn't been, and maybe we've got it wrong today. Or maybe we do have a right and they had it wrong in the past. But you have to have an honest and serious engagement with history. Yeah. And this movie doesn't. And so, and ultimately, even the sense of, hey, we want to tell you the the story of, of, Ameri- of the American century. You didn't tell me the story of the American century. You didn't honestly show the periods that you're depicting on screen.
1: Just an aside on, on Queenie. Uh, or, and just on how some of the other characters age, too. I thought it was very odd that uh, we saw her as quite young and vibrant. And then Benjamin Button leaves for a short while and he comes back, I think, from the war. And all of a sudden she's got like the baked bean teeth and, and she looks quite a bit older. Uh, that struck me as kind of odd. And and speaking to the film's kind of superficial- or superficiality as well. Uh, that that uh, element kind of came out of nowhere. I don't know if you noticed that.
0: <laughs> I didn't pick up on it. I guess I didn't. I mean, I, supposedly, see, 1918 is when he's born. He probably leaves in the mid-30s because he goes first to, was it Moscow? Yeah. And then to the war. So he probably comes back after nearly a decade away. I suppose she could have aged a bit in that. Um, I I just Incidentally I also uh, That's That period uh, Where he is Working on the tugboat Maybe is my favorite Sequence In the movie
1: I was gonna say The same thing actually
0: Jared Harris Is awesome In his his character
1: Yeah He was like My favorite guy In the movie For sure (laughs)
0: He he creates such an interesting character with very limited screen time. Yeah. And I just love that scene where Benjamin... And it's it, this is, again, this is where there's moments in the movie they go, oh, that's so good. When Benjamin wants to take Daisy out, as little kids, and it's where they kind of get, like, he's an old man's body, but he's a little kid at heart. He's, can we go out and, you know, not understand exactly that his captain is an alcoholic who's not going <laughs> to just be able to get up in the morning, you know, because two kids want to take a ride on the tugboat. Yeah. And I just love his... It's Sunday morning. Do you know what that means? No. It means I was very drunk last night. (laughs) I mean, there's just a humor in those scenes. And there's a life in those scenes that sadly is just kind of missing everything else. But those scenes are maybe the ones that kind of get a little bit of the whimsy. And then it goes back to being too damn serious.
1: Yeah. And when he comes back in the end uh, for that little montage sequence that reminded me of the end of uh, Titanic, actually. (laughs) with uh, seeing all the characters from the film again. Just reminded me how much well, I miss, missed his character and, and how much the uh, the film needed more of, of that tone.
0: Yeah, I mean, if you just had populated with that kind of attitude, that kind mm-hmm. of, I mean, there is a, a few traces of cynicism, even in that story, the Native American soldier that's all rah-rah America, and it's kind of this, Wink, wink, nod, nod. This idiot, dope, who doesn't know that America destroyed him and his people. Uh, so it, there's a sense of look at how smart we white people are that are making this movie. We we, we can recognize this Indian this <laughs> Indian is a dope for not hating America like we do. Uh, so there is some of that in there. But if, if that movie if that tone was effectively comp, uh, carried throughout this movie, you'd have a very good movie in many ways, uh, or at least a much better movie or interesting movie. Uh, but it just it gets lost. It gets lost in this particular film. Mm -hmm. Uh, You you mentioned the ending, Matt, and that made me think of that, that scene where I, it's yeah. I mean, Benjamin's giving this narration of what he say. Some people are mothers. Some people are dancers. Some people make buttons. It goes on and on and on with all these things. And then it just ends.
1: Yeah. It's, it's abrupt.
0: (laughs) Well, I was just like, well, la-dee-da, you, you, you notice that people are different? Is that the takeaway for this movie? Is that its summation of its thought? Um, and again, this maybe gets to the point of, am I missing something? Because so many people seem to like this movie and think it's saying something important. But it seems like that was meant to be its its thesis statement at the end there. And it just, it's basically ultimately amounts to, you know, there's different kinds of people in the world. That's it. Yep. He <laughs> doesn't have anything more to say. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well what more is there to know nate really honestly
0: well you could have told me that but still done it in less than three hours
1: yeah save me save me the time well just that ending i again back to the manipulation just all those shots of, of people with their arms outstretched and it's just uh it's trying so hard to make you cry at the end and it's yeah it's obnoxious
0: right well i think the right word for this movie is pretentious i don't like using that word very often yeah but it is a pretentious movie in that it thinks it has a lot more to say than it really does you know again i I mentioned the comparison to forrest gump that movie actually is emotionally effective perhaps it is manipulative in the good old hollywood fashioned uh filmmaking sense but it is effective, and it also has humor. And Forrest Gump's almost a comedy, really, yeah. with dramatic, and it's kind of a dramedy, I guess. Right? This is purely drama, moments of some humor, but not much, and it, uh, it just takes itself so seriously, whereas I get the sense that Robert Zemeckis and company, when they made Forrest Gump, were aware that this is a preposterous story, but let's have fun with it, and maybe occasionally have a little bit of an insight, a little bit of a thought, into some of the events that we grew up with that we know about. This one it doesn't say anything. And that's where the pre- it's, it says it thinks it's saying something but it doesn't. I would agree. Well, let's talk about this as a as a movie released by the Criterion Collection. Uh and part this is part of why I wanted to talk about this movie here tonight because it's a very mainstream movie, it's a mainstream release. As a matter of fact, I would say this is probably the most mainstream release Criterion's ever done. Uh, I'm holding the copy of the disc right here right now and it's even in the, from the very first days of Blu-ray it is I believe the only Criterion Collection title to be released on Blu-ray with the blue case. Yeah. Uh maybe I'm wrong on that one but I think it's the only one. Yeah, it's and, the only it's
1: the only one for sure.
0: And it also was just the the simple release of it was always on Criterion it's not like there was a release put up by Paramount or Warner Brothers, and then Criterion later came on and did a different release. This is the only release that's ever been put out on disc. It was from them, and it was something that was being sold. I, I picked up my copy at Target. So it's just very much the most mainstream Criterion release that's ever been done. Um, I, this raises, the I guess, the question of the Criterion collection and its releasing of films, it's typically art house. It's typically foreign films, highlighting them. But there are these other movies: The Rock, Armageddon, some of the others that have been released over time, that are more mainstream. What are your thoughts about just the idea of the Criterion Collection releasing these kinds of big budget commercial movies?
1: Well, this is a point of contention, I think, for a lot of fans, especially with the inclusion of you know a couple Michael Bay movies. Uh, which i I guess I admittedly don't
0: ever, those were included before he started making Transformers, and everybody learned how big of a hack he is
1: <laughs> well Just for I, record. I, yeah that's that 's true, but I always go back to to criterion's kind of mission statement that 's on the back of every every release you know it 's a collection of important um classic and contemporary films, so you know important is kind of an expansive term. You know, a film doesn't necessarily have to be a great film to be considered important. And I think it's very clear that not every film in the Criterion Collection is necessarily a great film. Uh, so part of it is, OK, well, let's look at it through the lens of how is this an important film? Uh, we probably have to go back to the visual effects to say that, you know, it's an important film in advancing uh digital, you know, visual effects in terms of face replacement or face augmentation, I think there's some great accomplishments in this, in this picture, uh, in that arena. Uh, so uh, you could say Armageddon, for instance, is kind of the archetype of the big budget Hollywood blockbuster slash disaster movie. And, and that's maybe worth including an example of that in the collection as well. Uh, so there's there's different ways to kind of frame uh, some of these more mainstream releases that, that I think could justify their inclusion. Uh, but we also have to look at it from an economic standpoint, right? So, so Criterion, let's face it, they release films that are relatively obscure. Uh, there are a lot of classic foreign films that, of course, are very well known that they get to release. But they also release a lot of smaller things that people may not necessarily know about. And they do have to fund those endeavors. I mean, those films are never going to sell as many copies as Benjamin Button. So if they get an opportunity to get a bigger film, release a bigger film, fill up the coffers a bit to, uh, to fund some smaller projects, I, I'm, I'm certainly okay with that. So part of it's a business decision, but part of it's also, well, I, I think some of these films could fit into their mission statement uh, when, when thought of in the, in the proper context.
0: It seems to me that there's a bit of hypocrisy here on part of the fans of the the Criterion Collection. If you're excited about the news that came out this week saying Barry Lyndon is going to be released in October on Blu-ray by the Criterion Collection, but then you turn around and you criticize them for releasing something by Michael Bay or something by David Fincher like this, that doesn't make sense. Kubrick is about as mainstream as it goes, especially now. Right, I mean, you could argue back in the '60s he wasn't, but he certainly is now. Yeah, and Barry Lyndon was nominated for Oscars, won Oscars. It maybe wasn't a huge box office smash, but it still is pretty mainstream. Uh, the Doctor Strange Love has been released by them. That's pretty mainstream. Spartacus was mainstream, right? So the idea that no, these movies shouldn't be released. Traffic is another mainstream movie, right? Uh, So the idea that they shouldn't be released is, I think, ridiculous. There's nothing wrong with the blockbuster. It's a part of the cinema, and it's an important part of cinema. It's part of how studios finance themselves, if they make money, to then maybe try to experiment on some other films, too. And some major breakthroughs do happen in in those big-budget movies. And, yeah, I mean, whether this should be included or not, we could talk about that in a little bit. But I don't think that there's anything categorically saying, no, you shouldn't have this be released. The only caveat I might say is that I would think that if you're trying to determine if it's important, you have to have a little bit of a passage of time to really know. Does this movie actually impact things? Yeah. Uh, does Benjamin Button? If you, if it's you're releasing it to DVD or Blu-ray months after it hit the theaters, can you really establish that that's an important film?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I don't know that you can establish it that quickly. So there probably needs to be a little bit of a waiting period. And that would apply to some of the other stuff they release that's a foreign film. Uh, uh, Phoenix, we talked about that earlier. I mean, that didn't come out that long ago, but that was how they released it into the States on disc. So it's one of those things where I think you just need to have a little bit of passage of time to establish, does it really meet that mission statement that the collection has set out for itself? But there's no reason this movie, on the face of it, should never be included, or that Whatever other major mainstream movie you could think of has to therefore be rejected. And I think you bring up a good point. Just because it's important doesn't mean it's a good film. And not necessarily does a film need to be good to be merit a place in the collection. There could be films that are important that aren't uh, in the collection, or I mean are in the collection but aren't any good. So uh, that would be my thoughts on this particular, particular question that is before fans right now uh, with the collection.
1: Yeah, I, I guess I just want to mention, too, that I think Criterion is almost in a state of transition at this point. I, I don't know how you feel about this, but uh, do we should we even consider them a small studio at this point? I mean, they have such a following, and they're really considered the creme de la creme of the home video industry. I guess the home video industry, though, is still, well, it's been reduced now to kind of a... a a niche market because everyone is is streaming nowadays, but uh, I feel like other more recent films are being released initially on Criterion. I mean, we have what um, certain women is is coming out from Kelly Reichardt and um, uh, Olivier uh, Assayas' films have been premiering on Criterion. I think Personal Shopper's coming out and Clouds of Sils Maria was released. So I feel like Criterion is becoming almost, a go-to studio for releasing newer films so the the philosophy of classic and important is kind of being pushed to the back burner uh if they can get these high-profile releases uh, so again from a business standpoint i understand that but over time i wonder if it's going to dilute the um you know the the position of the collection in terms of Uh, the sense of curation it's always had.
0: I think you got a great point on that. I mean, it certainly is nowhere near as massive of an enterprise as the major studios, but they keep producing every year what they're doing with their uh, actual hard media releases, right? I mean, the physical media is just disappearing. Criterion is still committed to it. We'll see how long they can hold out on that because it might become economically impossible for them, mm-hmm. and they have positioned themselves well with Filmstruck for the streaming era. But I think you got a, a good point there, that they are c- certainly, they have been for a long time in the home theater community, the creme de la creme, and they've been understood as that. But now they kind of have no. they used to have competition for that title, and there's not much. I, mean, I guess you could argue somewhat kino. uh Maybe you could argue a little bit with... Um, uh like like shout company uh you know uh, you could have their shout factory you could have them as a a more of an even more of a niche uh market perhaps Mm -hmm. than the criterion collection um so you you have a good point there and i do think yes there is a chance of watering down the quality but there's always been i think also a criterion a sense of sometimes putting out stuff just to put stuff out uh that they they have certain titles that I go, I've go. i always thought, I don't know that that one really has any basis being released here. But uh, I also think that what you see is more and more certain people must be working with the Criterion Collection and have a relationship with a director or uh, another artist of some sort, and they keep getting those titles. Like For example, the release that's coming out of Twin Peaks Firewalk with me. Uh, yeah. it's a, I like that movie, actually. I'm probably one of the few people that does. Uh, but it doesn't really strike me as something that the Criterion collection would put out plus it's already released been released and a very good edition of the blu-ray was part of the the twin twin peaks tv series package so it's just one of those things where you go well is it they have certain directors that people have a personal preference for there and so we make it a point to get whatever movies we can of them because it's oh it's a david lynch film that might be a little more popular and again trying to fill their own coffers so i i get they have to do some of that because if they don't yeah you go bankrupt you have to be profitable mm-hmm. but there's also a question of what will the future of criterion be on disc and speaking of the disc i have to say this was a very impressive release uh i you mentioned matt you hadn't really gotten into the special features but they have a very good documentary it's about 3 hours long and it's actually much better than the movie so if oh, you right. wanted to watch the making of documentary i i recommend it's one of the better making of documentaries that i've seen uh so i would highly recommend that to anybody who's interested in the filmmaking process they do a great job of showing what they did and how they did it cool Um, did you uh did you catch capture any of the of the disc or of the release or anything like that anything strike you from it
1: uh well I, i have to confess i i watched this on amazon prime i do not own the disc
0: fair enough it's a good presentation uh, you know, it's, it's in good shape. Uh, you know, it looks beautiful, uh, which you would expect from the material and then just when they made it. So, you know, it's, it's a, it's an excellent looking transfer. Sounds very good. Uh, commentary by David Fincher was disappointing. He usually's given pretty good commentaries, but I found this one to be underwhelming. Uh, a couple of nice anecdotes here and there, but nothing, nothing particularly, uh, insightful in terms of Understanding his own interpretation of the material, uh, from my reading of it, but so well, Matt. Uh, just getting to our usual question of how we end this: Does the curious case of Benjamin Button belong in the Criterion Collection?
1: Well, my own personal opinion of the film will color my answer, but I, I would say no. I I just don't think the film is strong enough, even with its visual effects accomplishments and technical accomplishments. It just really comes across as a release of opportunity for Criterion. And I can understand that, again, from a business standpoint. I I totally get it. But uh, I I think it does hurt the collection to have this film in it.
0: It definitely doesn't belong, in my opinion. I don't think that's just based on my own personal opinion of the film. There's other titles that have been released by them that I don't really care for, but I can say I understand it. But we're almost 10 years removed from The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. I don't see it having had any sort of impact on anything. Uh, yeah, the visual effects, you could say, were a breakthrough. People learned things from this movie and then applied it to others. But I don't know of any filmmaker that's going, you know what I really want to do? I want to do the kind of thing they did in The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Yeah, the technology got developed, but it probably would have been developed anyway. And so I just don't know that it has any real impact on cinema and where cinema went. So, no, I'd say it's not it's not an important movie. Yeah. It thinks it is, but it isn't an important movie. And with that, we will go ahead and draw our conversation to a close tonight. And please join us next month as we discuss Paul Schrader's Mishima, A Life in Four Chapters, which will be released on the first Friday in September. Thank you, and have a good night. And with that, we are going to draw our, clo- our conclude. Oh, let's start that one over.